Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Caroline Sita, a film critic and close-up magic enthusiast. And I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and ingenieur. I design illusions for stage magicians. A classic career that we all aspire to. The way this podcast works is that Ned and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love. This is the fifth and final installment of our Christian Bale retrospective. And I actually had a very hard time picking what movie I wanted for our fifth feature. I knew I wanted to do Little Women as sort of representative of his early period piece, romantic leading man career. I wanted to do American Psycho as like a breakout role, obviously Batman as a big franchise thing. And then The Fighter as like his, you know, awards winning turn in his career. I think that there maybe is an argument that we probably should have done Vice as sort of his most one of his most recent roles, his work with Adam McKay. I think Maybe. at the end of the day, Ned, we didn't want to talk about Vice. We wanted to talk about The Prestige, and it's our podcast. That's right. So you're damn right. It's our podcast. Today, and if we want to just geek out about The Prestige, then that's just what we're going to do. Yeah, exactly. So today we're covering Christopher Nolan's 2006 movie, my favorite of Christopher Nolan's movies, The Prestige. Yeah, and I think we can just we can just you know, give our critical analysis the the short version right now. I think we just both love this movie. This movie is great. I love it more every time I see Agreed. it, except for the second time, which I'll talk about that. Oh. But well, what since you, then, it's been pretty linear. Well, when did you first see this movie? Uh, I think I saw it in a hotel. Ooh, uh, a hotel movie. You know, yeah, you remember when, like... We could travel you know, in the world and interact <laughs> with right. humans? Remember when you could go to hotels? And remember when hotels had kind of an early forerunner of on-demand when such a thing didn't mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so much exist, or, you know, LodgeNet. So, and it would usually have to do, it would usually, the movie selection would be somewhat tied to recent releases. So I saw it in a hotel, presumably sometime shortly after it came out, probably wide or a full screen, like cropped in mm-hmm. on a relatively small TV. Um, Just the way Christopher Nolan dreamed you would experience it. Yeah, Christopher Nolan, the uh, extremely fastidious film enthusiast, probably was, he he probably would, you know, a shudder would go through his his body thinking of that. But you know what? People watch movies all kinds of ways. And if the movie is good, it'll, it'll come across. Well, Nolan would be happy because I saw this movie in a theater. I nice. loved this movie from the first time I saw it. I have loved this movie every time I've seen it. Like you, I feel like it gets better every time. And I actually feel like, I don't know if you even remember this, I sort of feel like Christopher Nolan and maybe this era of his career was like sort of formative for our friendship. Because I remember in college, I think we were just talking about Nolan and you had written this paper that was about, it was like interpreting Christopher Nolan's films through the prism of like his relationship with his brothers. And then we were talking about it and I either, I probably asked to read the paper and I remember reading this paper and being like, oh yeah, like... Ned and I are on the same page with a lot of things. And I actually think about that paper a lot when I think about, like, that became then formative for my thought process of Christopher Nolan. Wow. I can't believe, I'd forgotten that. I can't believe you read my whole research paper. Yeah. I mean, that was almost certainly at my request. Like, that that is my personality in a nutshell, is asking to read my friend's (laughs) research papers for fun. (laughs) 
Yeah. That was a great that was a great writing experience. That was a summer class. I could actually focus. That was maybe the only paper I finished twenty four hours before it was due. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really fun. Oh wow. So yeah, we we were we were both nerding out about Nolan as far back as, you know, ten ten or so years ago. Um and and here we are today, about to do exactly that again. So, wait. Before we do Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Shall I throw out a little spoiler warning? We don't usually do this. Clearly, we've been playing sort of fast and loose with spoilers. And I, I'm generally okay doing that. Um, but I'd say for this one, really, don't listen to this podcast until you've seen The Prestige. Go watch The Prestige. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's got some great twists that should be experienced from the film, as opposed to casually discussed by us. And what's more, I can't imagine this podcast is going to be very entertaining to you mm. if you haven't seen it. It'll just be so confusing. Good call. So... Go watch it. Put down your uh, listening device. Your iPod. Go acquire your, Zoom. your iPod or, or what have you and go acquire a copy. Your Zoom. <laughs> a copy of the 2008? 2006. No. Like I said, the 2006 film The Prestige and then return and we'll be here for you. But speaking of that, it is wild that they made that, – that Nolan and Bale made this movie between Batman Begins and Dark Knight Rises. I feel like that's sort of an unusual – these days that feels like an unusual thing for a director and like leading man to do. Like it's almost kind of remarkable that they could fit them in. The Batman Begins is 2005, Prestige is 2006, and then Dark Knight is 2008. Like they that was like – I hope that Nolan and Bale get along well together because that was a lot of time that they spent working together. Chris Evans and the Russo brothers went and made some sort of like medium low performing 19th century drama in between Infinity War movies Mm -hmm. that just might stand out more. It is a weird thing about The Prestige that this movie did not do that well when it came out. It was like really barely made back its budget. It was sort of like okay in how it was received. Like, I think it's something like in the 70s on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, it was not a huge hit. Although these days, I think it has very much been reassessed and now is usually among people's favorite Nolans, if not their top favorite. So I want to, wait, Ned, I want to know, first of all, I just need to know about this second viewing that you've hinted at where you didn't like it as much. That's been, Mm -hmm. that's been, I've been curious about that since you said that. Well, I think... That there is, that the, ironically, the prestige of this film, the final scenes, the last 10 minutes are not my favorite part. Something about them. It's a lot to take in. It's a lot to take in, and it feels like it somehow does not button the film with the sort of thrilling, mysterious, atmospheric intrigue that... 90% 90% of the film operates with, I feel. And I think there is something about m- mysteries that is very end-focused. You're mm-hmm. very looking to, looking forward to the end and to the revelations. And when you are watching this film the first time as a mystery, to get to the end and like, oh, it's twins? I, I didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. But something about it just felt, I don't know, far-fetched and off for me. Is it the and twins that's throwing you off or the like tesla clones that's throwing you off or was throwing uh, it you was off? It, it was the twins i huh. think but also i didn't fully understand the tesla clones thing and something about watching it the second time i was like oh this is this dumb movie where it's like i perfectly identical twins and i don't know i just was sort of like feeling like the solution of the mystery didn't satisfy me and 
probably, you know, somebody cool at school had said they thought the prestige was dumb. So I internalized <laughs> that, you know, some, some bullshit like that. Um, but I thought it was like, I don't know, I, I didn't enjoy so much my second viewing. And then by the third viewing, that was the first time where I was really able, I felt, to begin to track the two, this is our spoiler drop, yeah. the two Alfred Bordens, the twins, I guess we said twins, but to track the two different similar but distinct mm-hmm. characters that Christian Bale is playing and how much work they have done throughout the movie to make it that they clearly know. And there's this whole layer that was not present when you first watch the film where they've been extremely precise about who is on screen and they each have their own plots and sort of character Mm -hmm. arcs. And yet that whole thing doesn't unfold until you're really ready to start watching it the way that you watch a movie that is not new to you anymore. It's rewatching an old you just start to be able to appreciate the things a movie does i think more mm-hmm. on later rewatches and this movie is doing so many of those things and i think at the center of it you have this performance of bales which i think is one of the great i honestly i think one of the two great rewatchable twist characters yeah. The other one, if I may spoil a completely other film, sure. I won't spoil it that, I mean, we already spoiled Equilibrium, right? Without warning. Um, so The Usual Suspects, without me saying much in detail, is another movie that on a second viewing or a third viewing is operating on a completely different layer than it does on its first viewing. And that's all built around a performance. But that performance is a Kevin Spacey performance. And those yeah. are kind of, I think, just sort of... Uh, um, indelibly stained now by the extremely uh, off-putting aura that comes off of him as a person. So um, not in a (laughs) dramatic, interesting way, but in a... This is a horrible human being way. way. Yeah. So I think that what we have instead, we need to now let uh, verbal Kint fade into the past and raise up Alfred Borden as one of the The great... great Twist characters. Twist characters characters i do think for people that don't connect to the prestige i think the things that throw them are the switch from realistic magic to the complete sci-fi of the clones i think for a lot of people that's a bridge too far and then i do Mm -hmm. think other people have concerns around the twin reveal i think for some people it feels like it's easy for them to figure out i've heard that mentioned as a complaint i think Maybe just in the way, in how mysteriously Fallon, the like fake twin persona, is presented, maybe that clues some people in. I have to admit, I I did get it on my first watch, but that was because I was so obsessed with Christian Bale that like I see him in profile, I'm like, that's Christian Bale. Like I know that face anywhere. <laughs> I know this yeah. man well. That happens for some people, and I do think it. I know some people who after one viewing said they had not liked the film because they found that twist too easy to predict. I don't know. Maybe my regard for maybe my ability to read faces is uh, less developed than some. I had no clue. I I thought Fallon was just some other guy. But I think you hit on this before. What actually makes this movie good in within the movie, there's a part where Sarah Alfred's wife is like, Oh, once you know the trick, once you know the secret of the trick, it's like less interesting to watch. And I actually think this movie is exactly the opposite, where the twist and the magic trick is ultimately not the most impressive thing about it. What's that impressive is going back and like looking at how the themes of the twist are 
woven throughout the movie. So to me, this is not yes. like a movie that hinges on a twist. This is a movie that only gets more interesting, as you're saying, when you know that there's twins and you can go and try and track and like, oh, this is the... In my head, it's like the sort of calmer, happier twin that loves Sarah and then the sort of more obsessive, intense twin that loves Scarlett Johansson's character, yes. Olivia. So that's yeah. like how I mentally classify them. And it's like, ooh, which one's which in this scene? And yeah, all of that stuff, I think, is exactly what you said. I only like this movie more each time I watched it. It was so fun to revisit for this yeah. podcast. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I was extremely... Ple- pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed this rewatch. I think it was the the. F- I think it's probably my favorite of the films that we have watched mm. for this podcast. And I don't know if I would have known that going in. I might have said that Batman Begins. Yeah, but, but Batman Begins, I felt um, uh, like slightly the allure of it didn't play as much for me this time. I had more criticisms, and this one, I loved this viewing as much as I have ever loved it. There's so many little subtle things to catch up on in there so a little context for you know my my research loving brain as to how this film came together this is written by christopher nolan and his brother jonathan nolan the creator of westworld who i think maybe goes by jonah in real life i feel like on the westward westworld commentaries they always call him jonah but his wikipedia lists him as jonathan so jonathan nolan um they this is actually the first time they had written a script together because even though Memento was Jonathan's idea, but Nolan then or Christopher Nolan then just goes and writes the script on his own. So this is their first time they worked together. And this is actually based on a book, which I did not realize until I just looked it up for this. It's a 1995 novel written by Christopher Priest. The Nolan brothers get the rights for that. And then they work on this for a really long time, I think on and off for like five years. They were considering doing it before Batman with a different cast, but they end up pushing it back to do it after and then it's actually christian bale who asked to be in the project he somehow had just because the script had been around for a while i think you know various actors had just been able to read it and he's the one that approaches nolan about being in it and nolan hadn't really been considering him but then ultimately that works out and i think that this is a a very smart bit of christian bale casting and last week with the fighter we talked about how That was a role where he thanked Mark Wahlberg for giving the quieter performance so that his loud performance could sort of shine. And I think this is the opposite. This is a movie where Hugh Jackman's giving the very loud, showy performance, but maybe it's Christian Bale's quiet performance that's sort of key to making the movie work. Yeah, this sort of intensity that he's carrying around from the beginning, from the the chronological beginning where they're young men both acting as you know, apprentices to a magician, this, uh, I mean, we've, the word intensity, that's probably been our, one of our most (laughs) frequently used words in this entire series, uh, which maybe he feels good about that. But, um, yes, it is definitely more of a quiet intensity in this one. And it works really well. There's something, uh, he's not like the brainiest character of Christian Bale's. No, it definitely feels like a very working class meat and potatoes guy who just wants to be a magician as is so common in stories yes yeah he's got this sort of like thick like head forward like shoulder the grindstone i don't have the phrases for this but um but like really as you say like a simple working class single-minded focus and it makes that character really interesting because he's going up against someone who 
has these critical similarities uh, in terms of like being sort of obsessed with their rivalry and with magic, but is also completely of a different background and of a different style and mannerism and it makes it a really interesting duo movie Mm -hmm, for sure with should we just say a just a fantastic hugh jackman performance really good he's really good in this and this i think was a sort of a different use of him that had been up to this point like he had been so known as like either he was wolverine or he was like the broadway showman and this is sort of an interesting Mm -hmm. blending of those personas in a way it's very it's very dark what he gets into. I mean, he's got the Broadway showman. I wrote down one of my the notes. the inspiration for The Greatest Showman? I wrote down one of my notes. I said, Hugh Jackman is perfect in this. Like, he's one of the great showmen of Hollywood. And I did not do that as a bit. I genuinely mean he has that classical uh, sort of onstage charisma that he really brings to this. But it also shows that he is... For all that and for him doing, you know, for him doing these, you know, sort of fun musicals, he's, he is really interested in some emotionally dark Mm -hmm. shit. And like uh, Robert Angier, his character is really, there is, there is some real grimness to the way that he kind of ruthlessly goes after Yeah, that one line where he's like, I don't care about my wife, I care about the trick. And you know he kind of doesn't mean it, but also he kind of does mean it. Yeah. That's like a that get that moment gets me every time. Yeah. And I do like it's to good. imagine that Jackman just watched this movie back and he was like, I look really good in a top hat. I should remember that. And then decades from <laughs> then he gets the greatest showman made. Yeah. Boy, does he really look good in a top he hat? He does. Yeah. He's good in this era. So because this was our last Christian film that we're covering, even though chronologically it's it's pretty early in his career. I did want to see if there were like themes I could pull from it that would sort of tie all this in a little neat bow. And I do actually mm-hmm. think, once I started thinking through that prism, I really do think that this movie does feel repre- very representative of Christian's relationship to acting. Like that the plot of this movie is a performer who sort of doesn't want to be a performer but feels compelled to perform. <laughs> In comparison to Hugh Jackman, to Angier, who just loves, like, Angier loves being a movie star, right? Like, he wants to just be famous, and he enjoys the craft of it, but the craft of magic is a means to an end. Whereas the craft of magic for the Borden twins is the entire purpose of it, and having to be a showman is, like, the unfortunate side effect of the career he's chosen, but not at all the part that he enjoys. And I feel like that's sort of exactly how we've been talking about Christian Bale's very weird relationship to being an actor where he likes the craft of acting, but like almost resents the having to be a famous public figure part of it. Mm-hmm. I think that there is also, it, it's funny. Okay. So first off, I think you're totally right on about that. I had not thought about that layer. And I was just thinking how much I love these scenes where he, where we see Borden performing mm-hmm. as they say, as uh, he says, no, he's a wonderful magician. He's a dreadful showman. Um, the the like weird kind of like tight lipped contempt he has for his audience yeah. the whole time he's <laughs> performing is interesting. It really feels authentic to a kind of performer who does not like performing as themselves. Mm-hmm. It reminds me. Call. Have I ever have I ever talked to you about that Colin Farrell Dumbo ad? On my Instagram. No, but I am. You're already speaking my language because I love Colin Farrell and I love Colin Farrell and Dumbo. 
Well, it's he's one of those actors as as there are many in the world who are extremely charismatic on screen, but they clam up the second they're supposed to, you know, quote unquote, play mm-hmm. themselves. And it's so conspicuous because he's paired with Danny DeVito, who's extremely comfortable in that mode. Yeah. So he's just saying these canned lines where Danny DeVito's like, we got a really big announcement this weekend. And Colin Farrell's like, but perhaps we should let someone who really knows about big <laughs> tell us more. And he just like looks up with this like twitchy eyed, like he's like a shy, he just, he just clearly is so uncomfortable with what he's doing. And then the only goes, thank you, Dumbo. It's just really <laughs> insufferable to watch uh, and great. And I think that maybe Christian Bale has some of that discomfort. But what we've seen in a lot of these interviews is what he instead does is this sort of like grinning, goofy, like sort of constantly self-mocking, mm-hmm. uh, absurdist humor tack that he used. So he's found his tactic for it. But it is interesting in The Prestige to watch him do, I think, a really uncanny impression of the kinds of performers who, for whatever reason, feel called to do performing, but then have this totally uncomfortable, they just totally look uncomfortable in their own skin when they're up there in front of an audience. And he, he like locks it down as his stages get bigger. Mm -hmm. But that first one where he's like linking the metal rings yeah. together before he does the bullet catch, this like just looking at the audience like a guy who is so uh, beaten down by having to be publicly in front of all these people. I think one of the smartest sort of observations in this movie is that when Angier and then Cutter, Michael Caine's character, they both go to see the Borden's big transported man act and it. At first, this is where he, like, one of the twins goes into a little closet door and the other one almost immediately comes out. And it's like, ooh, how did he transport? Um, And they are able to identify that that trick is amazing, but he's selling it so poorly that the audience isn't even responding to it. And I think that's such a smart observation about how art can work. Like, you do need an element of holding an audience's hand as to what they should care about in order to sell that. And that it takes two people who are good at showmanship to be like, holy shit, what did we just see? While the audience around them is just like politely applauding because they don't even quite get it. Yeah. It's a fun runner in this that you lots of times get to see artists watching each other's work from the audience. That's kind of a an interesting theme for them to, to explore because it does connect in a lot of ways, as Christopher Nolan's work seemingly often does, connect to a sort of meta exploration of some themes that arise as a filmmaker yeah yeah i what are agree the, what are the themes you got i want to yeah hear. so the other things that i that i was pulling from i mean some of these are just logistics like i think in general christian bale likes working with a lot of the he likes working with directors multiple times so this is obviously mm-hmm. he works with nolan a lot that's sort of the ultimate example of this but he's worked with todd haynes a couple times he did Velvet Goldmine and that um, Bob Dylan movie, I'm Not There. He's worked with Terrence Malick on New World and, and Night of Cups. He's obviously worked with David O. Russell a bunch, as we've talked about. He works with Scott Cooper on Out of the Furnace and Hostiles. And then he, his most recent collaborator has become Adam McKay. They did The Big Short and then they did Vice. So there is this thing where one in one of the interviews I read, Christian Bale said that the only thing he can control in a movie is sort of he cannot control how good the movie is going to be right that's not really up to the actor so all he can control Mm -hmm. is the experience he has and so he really seeks out 
experiences that will be interesting to him. And I think a lot of times when he finds, you know, a director whose process he enjoys, he kind of wants to return to that, which I think is just an interesting sort of theme of his career. But then sort of more, a more artistic theme is I really think he's drawn to these masculine, frequently all male or mostly male environments. And in fact, often recently, like a very close male friendship or rivalry or whatever just like two guys who have a very intense relationship to one another personally Mm -hmm. i think this dates all the way back to newsies i think that that movie actually (laughs) establishes a lot of these themes he will go on but obviously we saw this in the fighter last week right like that was the same thing it's like two complicated guys having a relationship in that one he's the showier role but something like 310 to yuma the western he did with russell crowe that's another movie where russell is a little bit more of the showman And Bale is a little bit more of the stoic persona. Same thing in Public Enemies, which he did with Johnny Depp, where he's sort of the buttoned up policeman, you know, chasing Johnny Depp's showy gangster. Uh, Yep, hate that movie. I don't hate that movie, but... That's a conversation. Yeah. When we do, I was going to say when we do our Johnny Depp series, but I don't think that's going to happen. Um, He did that Exodus movie about Moses. Which is? Oh, yeah. Did you see that? I did see it. I okay. Obviously, Christian Bale and all of those white people should never in a million years have been cast in this in these roles. Having said that, I actually do think it's a very good Christian Bale performance. Um, <laughs> sure. It's a performance that should not exist, but within those parameters, it is a good performance. But that's also, an, you know, obviously that's like the big brotherly conflict in that one. And then most he's Moses. Yeah, he's Moses, and I think uh, Joel Edgerton yeah. is. Ramses. Okay, I was about to say that, and then I panicked Let's about my lack the of pharaoh. Uh, yeah, the pharaoh. Um, and then most recently, his most recent film is Ford versus Ferrari, where it's him and Matt Damon just oh, being yeah. little besties driving around cars. Like he really likes these, you know, intense male dynamics. He likes exploring that yeah. in film. Maybe it's a really good hook if you want Christian Bale to be in your movie to be like, it's going to be you and this other yeah. guy X. You're, it's a two-hander. You know, you've got this complicated, intense relationship. Maybe, yeah. I wonder, like, I wonder, you named a bunch there that I had not considered. I wonder what the ratio of, is of that to films in which he is sort of helming them alone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess, you know, even the... Even the Batman movies kind of do fit into that model. I mean, I guess some of them, they have larger cast of villains, but but a lot of times I feel like the classic Batman model, and frankly, even just based on the Burton and Schumacher movies, when they were asking, like, you get to play Batman, I mean, the classic, the sort of deal of Batman, he always just lives in a in relationship with whoever his supervillain is. So maybe Christian Bale was like, yeah, I can do that. I can work. And then all of his 27 father figures of Morgan Freeman and Michael Caine. (laughs) That's right. Uh, He's like, okay, but hang on. Do I have, (laughs) do I have like a massive cast of medium famous father figures that I can play off of? Sign me up. Yeah. I had, I, I hadn't so much thought about that in this one because this one at least has, female characters at all mm-hmm. you, you can call them like thinly sketched but i think there is room for two good uh female performances in it um whereas i'm not you know i i'm not sure that's true in batman begins really which of the two are you saying you think one of the three is bad one of the oh now i've lost the, the three, three women one of the, characters performances oh oh no i'm just saying uh is it piper parabo yeah. is that how you say it Th- that's that's more of a 
cameo mm, appearance. Mm. I mean, she's only got what six minutes of screen time, probably. See, I like was gonna 10. segue this into. I think Piper Parabo, with her very small amount of screen time, is kind of great in this movie. And similar to Rebecca Hall, my question mark in this movie is always Scarlett Johansson, who mm-hmm. I don't think she's is a, disastrously bad. I think she conveys the vibe of she's like the showman herself and and sort of a a knowing actress who you know is tough but also glamorous like i get all that from her but Mm -hmm. the accent is disastrous and i yeah the accent is really don't know if the performance fully works and i always kind of block out that she's in this and it's a surprise to me every time i rewatch it (laughs) she's not on the level of rebecca hall and i kind of agree i think piper parabo is actually really good in her scenes um yeah, I don't know. Uh, Scarlett Johansson has some performances that don't land as mm-hmm. well. I do think she is good. She, I like Scarlett Johansson as an actress a yeah, lot. I do too. This one is just, I don't know. It's a strange, it's always the thing that jars to me. Like, I'm fully on board. I'm like, oh yeah, Nikola Tesla invented a cloning machine. Sure, 100% on board. Scarlett Johansson in Victorian England? No, that's a bridge too far. I can't, <laughs> I can't suspend my disbelief. Yeah. Uh, it's not a uh, yeah I, I don't know i don't know that i have anything incisive to say about her performance it's not particularly good it's not glaringly bad mm-hmm. it's not the strongest part of the film i do think the rebecca hall performance is also great for as little screen time actor. as it is yeah i think it really makes an impact like i always remember that she's in this movie and the whole runner where sarah who's mar- married to Christian Bale's character, Borden, she she has this, I mean, it, it sounds kind of corny to say it out loud, but she has this device where she'll he'll say, I love you. And she can tell, you know, she thinks it's just like some days he loves her and some days he doesn't. Obviously, she's ultimately talking to two, two different people. But I think it is such an effective device. The first time round, it's just an interesting character insight. And then the second time round, those en- end up being the biggest clues as to which twin is which in each scene. Yes. And I think she plays that concept really well. She does. She does. And it makes it really makes it really heartbreaking. And it's 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 some of the most um identifiable emotional pathos you have in this film it comes from her and her sort of increasingly desperate struggle with with as she says, I can't live like this, with living under those circumstances. Although it starts out, as you say, kind of cute and interesting, and it just it runs away with itself. Yeah, the way she it flips from at first, she's like, oh, I don't mind when I can tell you don't mean it because it makes the days you do mean it mean more. And then as they get mm-hmm. older, it's like, oh, on the days you do mean it, it makes it worse because the days you don't mean it are harder. Yes. And then the ultimate yes. button of at one point, she's just like, do you love me? And he's just like, not today. Like the way he says it is like crushing. Yeah. That scene is good because it, it's I think it really works for the character and for, for it works for this the structure of the mystery that neither Robert Angier nor Cutter nor anybody else suspects the twin reveal except for her she mm-hmm. kind of you can't exactly tell this for sure but it seems like she figures it out yeah. I like the ambiguity around it but it seems like she has figured out or at least figured out uh, everything but the last piece of he is two different guys sharing one identity and that that kind of drives her over the edge does make some emotional sense. But yeah, I think it's 
that's like the that confrontation where he she says, "Do you love me?" He says, "Not today." I think is interesting because it's the it's the closest he comes to admitting what his whole setup is, yeah, and saying it out loud before the end. He does kind of like that towing that line of. He kind of likes like saying it without saying it. You know what I mean? He's like, "Oh, some days I feel like a yeah. different person." <laughs> like he kind of. I hadn't noticed. Until this viewing, how many times he says true statements. Yeah. He almost, it's, you know, it's that clever equivocation. He almost never lies. I mean, I, maybe if I look through, I haven't thought to comb through with this comb, but it seems like he tells very few lies. He just says these coded, equivocating statements that everybody interprets one way. He even says, I love that he says to Root, the sort of drunken Hugh Jackman impersonator. Which is such a fun performance. That's a fun little bit where, where Hugh Jackman gets to play two characters. Um, it's just all these like masks and wigs and layers. Uh, but he says to Root, he's like, I use a double for my act. And the whole time he's like saying yeah. it and saying it and everybody's believing there's a twist and the twist is that he is telling the truth. So he has a lot of those moments where he he says like part of me, one half of me. yeah cared about you but not the part of me that's here not the part of me that yeah. loves you you know perhaps. there's a part even at the beginning his and i okay i have to say i didn't pick up on this i watched a youtube video and they pointed it out and i thought it was very smart but at the beginning oh, when I he see. first when angier starts reading the diary the diary opens like we were two magicians starting out on a great career and you assume that that means angier and borden <gasps> but it could equally mean borden and borden oh oh my Isn't that god good? that is really good yeah i've never I've never watched like a video essay. I assume there are many that sort of go to the work of differentiating exactly who it is. I think I most of the time know because I really feel like after rewatching this a lot of times, I can pick up on some of the things he does that mm-hmm. differentiates the two characters. But I've never, I'm not 100% sure all of the time. What I like... You said this before, there's a lot of ambiguity to this movie. And I think that's why it becomes so interesting to rewatch because it really Mm -hmm. is left very much up to the audience to just imagine the dynamic that's happening between the brothers throughout this whole movie. And is it a case where they're both equally invested in this? Are there times where one wants to give it up and one doesn't? Like you can really just write your own second like shadow movie of what's happening, which I find a very fun and interesting thing to do. Because you really, and then, I mean, then this is the question, like, is that how much of this is Christian's performance versus just what we're projecting onto it? But he does leave just enough breadcrumbs that you can feel like you're picking up on which is which and then, you know, right, okay, maybe this one's a little bit better at creating the tricks, but this one's a little bit better at performing the tricks and this, like, whole dynamic that they have. Okay, so we've got Sarah's Borden Mm -hmm. and Olivia's Borden. She calls him Freddy. If that makes sense. Yes, we could call him Freddy if we Freddy's want. Freddy's like the intense. Tell me some de- Tell me some parts of your shadow movie. What are some things that you have yeah. picked up on? Well, I mean, it's almost it's almost less like I've written it and more just like questions that I have. Like, what are the ethical mm-hmm. lines? Are they like, okay, we both just have free reign with Sarah because that's what has to be realistic? Or are there strict ethical lines of like, you, you know, is there a question of which one is the biological father of Jess? Or is that not a question? Do you know what I mean? Like, what were the rules they set up with that? And I wondered that as well. The logistics of like, even the scene where at the end of his first date with Sarah, 
one of the twins leaves and then the other one comes through the window and that's like a cute trick. But that's like you just yes. had a person who spent a date like, a you know, an afternoon with her and then somebody else has to continue as if he just had all those conversations with her. Which one is which? And did they plan like, oh, you're the one that likes her more. So you should be at this. I'll go on the dinner date, but you can go on the tea in her house date. Yeah, that part is weird. It's a great it's a great little bit for the mystery, but it is a little weird to think about. I think of the one who goes on the date as being Sarah's boarding right. and the one who comes in. And I think because I think he's so I maybe I'm reading it too much. It seems like that one, even in that little moment where he holds up the like teapot and does this kind of like assholey laugh, yeah. like eh, that he like has this lack of chemistry with her. Yeah. That I think is Christian Bale as a performer can turn it on and off. Where he has, he leans into this angle of like, one of them really connects with Sarah. One of them really connects with Olivia. And, and, you know, like, to watch him just look at whoever he's, whoever his scene partner is, to just look at her with that feeling vested in. I think that Olivia's Borden is the one who's more obsessed with the trick. Yeah, that's how I feel too. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's the one who hangs. Yes. Because he's the one who goes back. Because it's it's Sarah's Borden who is like, I get we give up. We give up. We leave him alone. We don't go back. And then it is it's Freddie, Olivia's Borden, who goes back to the trick and then gets framed for the murder. And I think it's a nice touch that that guy um still tries to save Hugh Jackman from drowning. Yeah. In vain. I always like that too. It's, it makes it makes Hugh Jack it makes Robert Angier more cruel because he does this to you know I think I think Christian Borden kind of functions as the villain yeah kind of for most of the for movie sure. and they do this great switch where by the end you're like wow I think that actually I mean they both have done some crazy fucked up things <laughs> but I think that I think that Robert Angier is actually like quietly by degrees become like way more depraved and just down to the fact that you know as we were saying there he deliberately arranges for the execution of borden as part of his gambit but borden tries to save him from drowning Mm -hmm. and that's the sucker move that ends up getting him i think that that is the magic act of the movie is that you start out they show you the scene one time and it seems as if borden has set up this whole trap and is like cackling while Angier dies like we see that scene sort of out of context at the very beginning of the movie and so that primes us to be like you say Hugh Jackman's the good guy Bale's the bad guy and then the movie Mm -hmm. very slowly builds to a switch and I think the switch is really all in Michael Caine's character because he's sort of like the moral center so when he switches Mm -hmm. allegiances then we're like oh that's the magic act like actually it's the opposite way and they both yeah like okay, I broke your leg while you were doing a trick and I buried your brother alive or your friend alive. These things are on par, but like you tried to frame me for murder and you're stealing my daughter. Like, bro, this is, you've taken this too far. This was just a fun (laughs) prank war and now you've really (laughs) escalated it and you're the bad guy. Bro, you crossed the line, bro. I, the amount, I can't tell if the movie wants it to be funny or not, but the degree 
the number of times that they put on a weird fake beard and go to the other show to mess with it is like that rake gag in The Simpsons where he keeps stepping on the rakes and it, it feels weird and then it just <laughs> becomes funny because he does it so many times. It's like yes. every other scene is just either Hugh Jackman or Christian Bale in a fake beard in the audience like, ooh, <laughs> what can I do to mess with you? And then also the yeah. double reveal of we get to the end of one diary and it's like, haha, I tricked you. This was a fake diary. And then there's another scene. Where it's like, oh, you thought you were clever. Well, I tricked you with my diary. And I think a lot of these things are why if you have, if you are, if this movie just hits you in a mood to dislike it, there's plenty of stuff that you could just call dumb. And I think that you and I are just both in a place where the sum of those parts is just so captivating and different and just skillfully done by the actors by the script by the direction the imagery it's a beautiful nolan film they're not all beautiful that's for mm-hmm. sure batman begins is not beautiful at all it is i do really really like the look of this film as well and i just love I, this feels like a film where someone was like let's take everything caroline loves and puts it into one movie <laughs> like i love close-up <laughs> magic i love this era this sort of turn of the century, like we're discovering science era. I just love that. Obviously, I love mm-hmm. Christian Bale. I love Hugh Jackman. I don't know if I would have been like the biggest David Bowie fan, you know, around. But like, I mean, David Bowie is Nikola Tesla. That's the sort of thing that I feel like Christopher Nolan could have just retired after thinking of that. And <laughs> <laughs> that alone would have been enough to like cement his career as a filmmaker. Yeah. I just love the, I love all those things. I love the way in which it pulls in all these imagistic i just love the fact that like okay it's a movie about magicians what do magicians do they wear top hats what does it start with a whole Mm -hmm. big pile of top hats you don't know what it is there's a black cat there's like the recurring image of the the doves and the birds and like whether or not you have to kill a bird to to do a magic trick or not it just um there are all these sort of totem symbols that go through it and they really resonate well and it all just feels like a uh like a i mean it has it's it's a period piece in a way that it doesn't just feel like we've taken x modern blockbuster and uh for style we're setting it in in you know the early 1900s it genuinely feels like a different kind of story that feels i don't know like it has some of these gothic horror trappings Mm -hmm. that are of the era yeah i think it's really cool it's really cool. I think, the, yeah, I think the cast is wicked awesome. Something you said very offhandedly when we were first prepping for this, like weeks ago, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. it's a movie about like wife guys that get too intense. And I have not stopped thinking about that because it made me realize that Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, and Christopher Nolan are all wife guys. And I think this is, <laughs> they've all been married for 20 plus years. Christopher Nolan is, yeah. has met his girlfriend in, or now his wife, in uh, in college. So they've been together since they were like 19. She produces all of her his films, Emma Thomas. So she produces this film. Wow. Hugh Jackman. Okay, wait. I also, while I was researching this, Ned, I cannot, like, this was the most beautiful full circle moment, which is that Hugh Jackman's wife, who is an Australian actress named Deborah Lee Furness, she played... David's mom in Newsies. <laughs> what? David, who's Christian Bale's Jack Kelly's best friend in the movie, his little male duo. 
Yes. That character's mom is played by to Hugh Jackman's wife. So Christian Bale that... has worked with the entire Jackman family. Furness, J- Jackman Furness family. That is... That is a bit of a puzzler. I guess I would be stumped if I were to have to guess their ages. So Hugh, she's older. She's 13 years older than Jackman. And, and how Jackman much older than... Older than Bale, I think. Christian Bale. Let's double check. I, there's definitely... I mean, when they're supposed to be young men in this, I'm like, ah, Yeah. But, you know, I just accept it. I just accept it like I'm watching a play. You know, I don't I don't care. So Jackman's can... 52 currently, and Bale is 47. And then Jackman's wow. wife is older. And then, obviously, like, they probably were supposed to be playing younger as the Newsies. I don't know. Anyway, that True. truly okay. yeah. blew my mind. It all comes together. And leads to the fact that I think Bale, Nolan, and Jackman, they are, they have, in different ways, have a certain intensity to their reputation. Like, Jackman's is more mm-hmm. in the, like, fun showman, like, not scary intensity that I think Nolan and Bale have. But yeah. they ultimately, in their private lives, all just want to be, like, quiet husbands and dads. <laughs> and it's, like, a strange dichotomy between what their sort of movies are like. And then they're just sort of like, oh, yeah, I just hang out with my kids and... Yeah, I'm so I'm so I'm so curious about what the inner lives of those relationships are like. But that's how it is with celebrities. Yeah. I, it's not mine to know. Well, this also um, the so I think one of the things that comes up with Nolan is the question of if he is like cold, too cold as a filmmaker, which mm-hmm. is frequently lodged against him as a complaint. I almost feel the opposite. I feel like I've always seen a sentimental streak in his work. And I, I completely agree. And I think the prestige is a little bit like that in that there is a version of this film that could have ended with like, I mean, it ends with a shot of like Hugh Jackman's dead body. So it's not exactly, uh, you know, the, the most <laughs> uplifting of endings. But there's a version of this movie where it ends with, you know, two two of the three dead and maybe the third all alone. Or it ends with all three of the, you know, the two twins and Jackman dead. There's a version of this movie that would feel way more cynical. But I think the reunion between, like, happy twin and daughter is very sentimental and ends this movie on a very different note and colors this movie to be a warmer movie than it otherwise could be. Yes. I completely agree. I do think sentimental is an accurate description. I mean, particularly after movies like Interstellar and Dunkirk, I'm like, this guy just... he. For all that everybody thinks he's like, oh, I want to explore the darkest, most depraved. No, I'm like, this guy just wants to see, like, nice, stolid British people and good American nice people, like, reunited with their families. And, uh, you know, I I, 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 I think that there is some, some sentimentality there, although I'm sure he's a little bit... This, this probably is tied to him having something of an aloof public personality. Mm-hmm. But that, that just also connects to... As you were telling me off mic that he doesn't have a cell phone or anything yeah. that he just, I think, has a desire to exist as a sort of a 19th century English gentleman. As a... Or maybe 1940s. Maybe it'll just... I was going to say 19th century magician. Yeah, maybe he wants to be I saw some well. quote where he said that magicians were like the original filmmakers. Interesting. So maybe that's the key. I mean, literally, one of the first special effects filmmakers was a, was a magician, Georges Méliès. Yeah, true. So there is that connection there. I think that this isn't is I'm thinking of the performances we've covered so far. In a way, I feel like this would my impulse is to say that this would be 
I like all these performances. My impulse would be to rank this one fifth and that I think that the other Christian Bale performances we've explored so far, Little Women, American Psycho, Batman, and The Fighter are like more compelling performances. But I also wonder if that's me underrating it because it is a quieter performance. And I think I yeah, go ahead. Well, I would I, I would certainly say it's at least fourth. And depending on my mood, I don't I don't know, Caroline, I love this performance. Do you? I think it's really good. I think it is really I mean, as I say, I like something about his sort of single minded uh understanding parts of the world really well but like just completely unable to grasp other parts of the world you know he's he's not really he doesn't really have charm that he can just turn on at a you know on a dime but he has some charm in his and when he's with kids he is so good with kids in this movie yeah he really it is, is charming as hell to watch christian bale just like sweetly interact with children yeah, I completely agree. I think it's a great performance. And I and, and I, I really, as I say, I, I can't get enough of watching him play two subtly mm-hmm. different characters in a way that works as one, but works much more richly when you can start to read between the two. And I really think he is doing things that I would have a hard time articulating that differentiate them. There is a fun... There's a fun interview from when this movie came out you can find it on youtube it was movie phone did this series called unscripted where it was just the two actors interviewing each other which i actually kind mm. of like because then you just i don't know sometimes i don't want to have the, the maybe it's just because i sometimes interview people so i feel empathy for the like potential social awkwardness of someone having interview people but i'm like okay these two people know each other i like to see them interview each other anyway in that interview but it's between jackman and bale and Hugh Jackman's like, oh, I, I really, I kept a diary because this movie jumps around so much in time, and I wanted to keep that all, um, you know, in my mind. And Christian Bale's before the movies come out, so he can't say the twist, and he's, he's just like, I made a chart because there are things I had to keep track of in each scene. And he basically, <laughs> you know, he's saying that he made, he and I think Nolan together made a chart where it's like, okay, in this scene I'm evil twin, in this scene I'm good twin, yes. or whatever it is. And that was an interesting – you don't hear him talk about his acting process that much. And that was interesting to me that he would just sit down and really, as we were saying, very clearly map out which one is which. Although he did say in the moment, sometimes that got thrown out the window and he was just acting. And mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think it's it's interesting because it's it's a logistical juggling act of a performance. And yet he still does, I think, really good – he just gives you good moments, good human moments, and good line deliveries, lines that just stick in your head or stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. Because I think I've probably seen this more times than the others. Uh, that's that'd be neck and neck with Batman Begins. I watched that a lot, including like three times when I wrote that research paper <laughs> that you <laughs> mentioned earlier. But I've seen this movie a lot, and I I think he's just doing things that uh, that are enriched every time i rewatch and so i think it's a great i think it's a great performance and i certainly i certainly i don't know where the balance is this between type of movie and performance but i would rather watch this i will probably watch this again for my sixth or seventh viewing before i watch fighter again oh for a second viewing 
Well, and this is what I was going to eventually try to circle back to is I think that when we are talking about good actors, a lot of times we want to go to the big transformative performances, which are, of course, mm-hmm. very impressive. Like, it's very impressive to watch Christian Bale so fully transform in the fighter. And we talked about how last week it didn't feel like it was transforming for the sake of transforming. It was very informed by the character and the movie. But to me, when I think about what makes Christian Bale good, it's thinking about him as Bruce Wayne in 2005 and then him as Borden in 2006, movies that are made like a year apart with the same director. And yet I think those performances feel so different. And they're not, neither of them are particularly showy performances. They're both kind of internal guys. They're, you know, you could even say like, oh, it's like internal intense guys with double personalities. Like you could think that these would be very similar performances, but I think his Bruce Wayne feels like a normal guy in an entirely different way than his Borden feels like a normal guy. And that maybe that more than anything is like the key to what makes him a compelling actor is that even in these sort of normal unshowy roles, they feel as transformative as his big transformative roles. You said it. This is why we love, we love you, Christian. (laughs) We love you, Christian. We love love talking about actors. Yeah. This will be our last Christian Bale episode. Unless Anyone out there knows the big guy and he wants to come talk. Oh Just God. based on uh, the press appearances we've seen so far, <laughs> I don't think it likely that he will want to. I do. But, okay. I also uh, want to shout out for people that are sort of interested in Christian Bale's vibe, which I think can be hard to get a grasp on because in written interviews, I don't know if his sense of humor always fully comes out. And then in sort of smaller press junket interviews, I don't think that's his arena to shine. But if you want to get a good sense of his vibe, I would really recommend this podcast interview from 2017 on Josh Horowitz's Happy, Sad, Confused podcast, which is a great podcast where he just interviews an actor for maybe like 30, 40 minutes each episode and really goes through a lot of their career. He's very good at talking to these people. And it's just a really, like, interesting interview with Christian Bale that I think really gets his persona, if that's something you're having a hard time grasping onto. And he talks about the Terminator Salvation tapes, and he talks about playing Batman, and he talks about Newsies and how for a long time in his life he couldn't, you know, he had no fond memories attached to that movie, but now he kind of really thinks back on it fondly. Like, it covers a lot of material and I think captures his weird both his intensity and his sense of humor really, really, really well. So if, if, you, if this if this podcast has made you, you know, interested in understanding Christian Bale's vibe as a person, I would recommend Josh Horowitz's Happy, Sad, Confused for learning more about that. It's made me interested in that, and I've never heard that podcast, so I will listen to it. It is a good podcast. Okay, is there anything – well, I think that there are 12 million more things we could say about The Prestige, but is there anything else really big that we feel like we haven't hit on yet? Maybe we should, you know what we should do when we eventually do Hugh Jackman on this podcast? Let's do this movie yes. again through the lens of <laughs> Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we could probably have a good go at it. That would be, that would be very interesting. The prestige, the other side. The other side, okay. Just because side. I feel like there's so much of this movie we haven't covered. Yeah. This is a rare movie I mean, where Christian Bale uses a British accent. That's right. Which and his that's part of why I think his line deliveries are so fun. Yeah. I sort of think that he I completely interrupted your attempt to do an impression, which we will circle back to, but I I sort of wonder if he he had kind of lost his accent and then he did this accent for this movie and then just committed to using this accent in his real life because I feel like this is the accent he has stuck with. Yeah, I, this this is most similar to his his public performances and it works. And it it, it is interesting because he 
I mean, I'm not, I don't really want to put my foot into the great world of the like class distinctions and class associated dialects in, in, uh, England, which I don't really understand, but, but he, he does sort of like, this is a working class accent, it Mm -hmm. seems, which he has adopted and made his own. And that ties into, I think his interest in being a working class actor or acting like it's a working class job. That is a very good call. I also wanted to issue one correction for myself for the last episode. It's been haunting me. Last time you oh. mentioned something about Christian Bale being Welsh, and I said, no, he's British. This was, of course, a faux pas on my fault, on my part, because Wales is part of Great Britain. So if you're Welsh, you're also British. What I meant is that he's English. He's English. He's English okay. as opposed to Welsh, even though both are British. I just wanted to issue that apology. I know that these are different countries, and we as Americans sometimes lump them together. So... There you go. It's been haunting me. <laughs> and I put it in my notes as something I had to address. Okay. Hopefully our uh, Welsh and English listeners will, will now forgive us. Will now forgive us. But they won't forgive my horrible Michael Caine <laughs> impression at the beginning of this episode or my horrible Christian Bale. I was gonna say, I feel like you need it. to give you need to give us another Christian line reading at some point because I cut you off before. We'll we'll get there. Okay. We'll get there. So as we're wrapping up our Christian Bale series. I mean, I, I, I'm actually very curious to see where our podcast goes from here, because Christian Bale, there is no other actor I have the relationship with that I have to Christian Bale. There will never other, mm-hmm. be any other actor. It's just this weird coincidence of me having to be happening to have been very obsessed with him in middle school slash high school, and then him also ha- going on to have the career he's had. So this has been, we've taken on a lot in terms of our first couple couple episodes. But as we're wrapping up here, I just wanted to say in terms of upcoming projects, on the horizon for Christian Bale, there is, he has an untitled film with David O. Russell that he's working on, with that Margot Robbie's in, John David Washington is in. I don't think a ton is known about that. Um, but before that, he's going to be in Thor Love and Thunder as Gore the God Butcher. And I am fascinated to see what Taika Waititi does with Christian I'm so Bale. curious what that is going to be like. I, that uh, th- There's so many different directions that could go for what... I understand, not having read many actual Thor comics, but my understanding of the character is that he's pretty intense. You know, he's like a victim of some major trauma, and then he decides he wants to genocide all of the gods in the universe. So how's that going to be? I hope- How's that going to fit with the technology? I hope they subvert it, and it doesn't just become like Carl Urban in Thor Ragnarok, where you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I wanted to just be don't lean into Thor uh Thor uh don't even do lean into Christian's intensity. Do something more with him. This is these are my pleas for Christian as we wrap up. I want him to do more mm-hmm. comedies, which to be fair, he is sort of doing with the Adam McKay stuff, but even more overt. And Christian, mm-hmm. buddy, can you work with more women again? Because you had such a great track record of working with female directors in the beginning of your career. And then as soon as you got super famous, you only started working with men, and it was forever a frustration for me. So universe please encourage christian bale to make it happen work with more women a couple other little christian bale roles i just wanted to shout out real quick if this podcast has inspired you to dig deeper into his career in terms of movies that are really good i mentioned this before but i love velvet goldmine it's another young christian performance i think it's such a sweet performance i think it's such a great movie it's also basically a movie about david bowie so if you want a prestige connection there's one for you uh, I think he gives a great performance in The Big Short. He, it's an ensemble piece, and he's kind of a small yes, role, does. but like that is a fantastic performance. There's yeah. this movie called Rescue Dawn that I think is another really, really great 
Christian performance where he's playing a, a fighter pilot who becomes a prisoner of war. Really, like, weird, quirky, kind of like a real-life guy. He is a real-life guy, and I think it's kind of like the fighter in the way he's sort of taking a very quirky, over-the-top figure and grounding him in reality. He played Bagheera in Andy Serkis's Mowgli movie that came out at the same time as Disney's Jungle Book and therefore got completely overshadowed by it. Not a great movie, but I do think like Christian Bale <laughs> as Bagheera, A-plus casting, really good wow. fit for that. And I can't believe we didn't talk about Andy Serkis in this movie Andy either, Serkis. but we'll just have to when come we back go, again. Let's just make The Prestige our through line for any actor we cover that is in The Prestige. <laughs> we have to revisit The Prestige. Yes. And then the last yeah. Christian project I want to shout out is Hostels, which is a movie that came out, I think, in like 2017. It's a Western. I cannot fully vouch for the entire movie because it's a movie that is trying to sort of look at the horrors and genocides of how genocide of how Native Americans were treated in America. But it does that mostly by the lens of using the Native American characters as supporting roles and centering all the white men, which I think is like fundamentally the wrong way to approach that material. So the movie I'm like so-so on. But again, a great performance and it becomes, there's a, a subplot that's just a romantic drama between Christian Bale and Rosamund Pike. It's like a very tragic, like it's a dark movie, but this like romance, I like cannot explain to you how much I loved this through line of the movie, how great these actors were together like how what an unexpected joy it was to see like a very dramatic romance with christian bale i don't know i find i found that element of the film to be so so great and is another direction i would love to see christian take awesome do you have any i feel like i've talked so much do you have any other christian bale performances you want to shout out as we're wrapping up none that immediately jumped to mind i mean no i think i think those are some of my faves i mean i i i I can't think of a movie I've seen that I thought he was not good in. Mm -hmm. I I mean, you said all those, and yet I think I what I most want to watch since we talked about it on the first episode is is the Reign of Fire, the dragon Hell, movie. Yeah, another male duo movie, him and McConaughey. That's right. That's right. Just me, Christian Bale, a dramatic actor foil, and a shit ton of dragons. Exactly what future. anyone wants on a Saturday afternoon. So, Ned, I have been at the helm of this ship for the past five episodes, but the way our podcast works is that I am now handing over the reins to you. We are now going to start a new mini series. You are going to be hosting the podcast. So yeah, why don't you take tell, a seat? Yeah, Let me take the reins. Take, you take the reins and you tell our listeners who we're covering next and what, what movie of theirs we're covering first. Well, I don't know that I have anybody that I have engaged with in the exact same way as Christian Bale, as you have with Christian Bale since your your teenage years, but somebody who snuck up on me more and who has just gotten to the point in the past few years where anytime I see that name uh, in, you know, helming a movie, I get excited because she always knocks it out of the park. I am, of course, talking about Emily Blunt. Heck yeah. Who... I think it's just so fantastic, and we are going to take a little spin through some of her movies, five to be precise, and we are going to get this started with the performance that introduced her to me, I think to a lot of people. She's not the star. Uh, we could have claimed it for Meryl. We could have claimed it for Anne. We could have claimed it for Stanley, but no, uh, we will be looking at the Emily Blunt breakout role in the devil wears prada and i can i just can't wait i'm so excited as well i love emily blunt i was so happy you suggested her for our next person i think we have we have a lot of fun movies to talk about 
which we'll dig into. So we say goodbye to one British legend. We say hello to another British legend. True. Miss Emily Blunt. So um, we'll be back with that next week. But until then, Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Caroline Sita and Ned Baker. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wonserski. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Roll Calling. You can email us, rollcalling at gmail.com. That's roll spelled R-O-L-E. Next week, we will be kicking off our Emily Blunt miniseries by looking at The Devil Wears Prada. Until then, stay safe and remember, the secret impresses no one. The trick you use it for is everything. That was okay. That was good. I think the thing was, you really sold it on the thing. Oh, thank you.